Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, August 1st. Maybe you've been hearing about the coup in Niger against their democratically elected president, but the population and neighboring countries seem to be divided about how to respond. Some European and nearby African nations are threatening military intervention to restore democracy. Others are saying, don't you dare. A headline in the Financial Times says protesters surround French embassy chanting pro-Russian slogans. So we'll talk about the Niger crisis now, including how it's a new front in a certain way in the competition between the U.S. and Russia for global influence. A headline on Politico says Biden administration unwilling to call Niger coup a coup. Our guest for this is Alexis Aquadrum, managing editor at Semaphore Africa, before joining the relatively new news organization Semaphore. Alexis reported for the Financial Times, the BBC for 10 years, and he was the Nigeria bureau chief for Reuters. Alexis, thanks for coming on with us. Welcome to WNYC. Hello, thanks for having me. And to help ground our listeners who may not know the basics. Niger is in the middle of West Africa. It's not on any coast. It's landlocked. It's north of Nigeria, south of Libya and Algeria. And to start with a Reuters story from 2020, um, it says, in a year marked by setbacks for West African democracy, Niger is poised to hold an election on Sunday that will lead to the country's first transition of power between two freely elected presidents that from 2020. So can you start by saying a little bit about what kind of rule Niger had before and how it became an electoral democracy just three years ago? Absolutely. Well, before Niger was primarily controlled by strongmen. It was a kind of de facto military state. And then two years ago, Mohamed Bazoum um, won an election and took over in the first democratic handover of power. And since then, he has become a real ally, a staunch ally of the West and the Sahel. And basically there's been a pivot whereby the way in which the country has been ruled has changed and it's very much cleaved to a sense of democracy. And the Reuters article said that stood in contrast in 2020 to the neighboring nations of Ivory Coast and Guinea where term limits for presidents were being ended or extended. So what was the regional context for Niger's democratization? I mean, ultimately, um, Niger was operating in, I mean, I guess, a situation whereby it was a nod to France, and um, France has been a very, very influential uh, player in the region because it's the former colonial power, and Mm -hmm. so it remained very, very, very strong. And then in contrast to that, I mean, At that point, when that Reuters story was written, Ivory Coast in particular was going through a pretty tough time. And it's actually come out of that time. So I would argue that the rest of the region has, uh, south of the Sahel, has moved very much towards democratization. I'm talking about countries like, I mean, Ivory Coast, Ghana has long been stable. Mm Benin and Togo have been relatively stable and Nigeria has been stable, whereas the situation has actually changed in those countries in the Sahelian belt. 
that is so interesting and a necessary uh, corrective, I think, to what we usually hear, uh, which is true as far as it goes, that the trend globally is toward less democracy. After decades when the trend was toward more democracy, uh, you're here to tell us in part that trend away from democracy hasn't necessarily been true in a lot of Africa, but it doesn't get a lot of attention here. And it was that elected president from 2020, Mohamed Bazoum, who was overthrown last week. So who staged this coup and why? So the coup was staged by the people who were defending him, the soldiers, the presidential guard. And the presidential guard is an elite unit of soldiers, and they took him hostage. They uh, And they just they, they took him out completely. So they held him hostage on Wednesday, and then ultimately the head of the presidential guard, who is long-time general announced that he was now in charge. Um, so it was the soldiers. They were the ones who took over. It's like as if the Secret Service in this country were to take the president hostage and take power themselves? Absolutely. I mean, that's a really good way of looking at it. I mean, you know, they're the people who are, they have elite training. They are very experienced and they have access. I mean, there's a lot of trust involved in protecting the person who is number one and i mean ultimately they betrayed the trust so a general called abdurrahman chiani um he's the one that said ultimately he's now in charge and why just because we have the guns so we can be in charge or are they representing some segment of the population in some way so there were a number of different factors at play i mean one is personal i mean i heard it said by a number of people that um, Chijani, he might have been about to get the push. So, you know, that's protecting self-interest. But there are far more deep-seated reasons. Ultimately, on several indices, Niger is one of the poorest countries in the world, if not the poorest country in the world. Um, about two in five people live on less than um, $2 a day. And people have been frustrated for some time because in addition to um, the poor conditions in which many people live, there has been uh, an Islamist insurgency raging on two fronts for the best part of a decade. So from the southeast of Niger, there have been Islamist militants um, who are allied to Islamic State and Boko Haram, who've been fighting in the Lake Chad region. They have attacked thousands of people and forced thousands to flee their homes. Then to the southwest of Niger, there have been Islamist militants who traditionally have been allied to Al-Qaeda, who have come over from Mali because Mali has been destabilized, and they have also been carrying out attacks, killed thousands of people, and forced thousands to leave their homes. So you have these factors whereby people are frustrated because um, it's a poor country, has a very high birth rate, so the population is growing rapidly. Then in addition to that, they're dealing with these Islamist insurgencies. And the sense was, whatever was in place in terms of the security infrastructure was not working. Um, the French have been present. Um, other foreign troops have been present. Um, the US has a base there as well. Germany has been present. And then in neighboring Mali, the French have been there and a massive UN peacekeeping force. But the frustration of the local people was that they felt not enough was being done and that they were steadily getting poorer and poorer and poorer. And I think since the invasion of uh, Ukraine 
by Russia, that has affected the price of food. That's driven up food inflation because there's been a shortage of grains, shortage of grain and shortage of fertilizer. So people who were already frustrated and poor and getting killed and being forced to flee their homes were actually getting poorer over the course of the last year because the cost of everything, particularly food, has gone up. Let's take a phone call uh, from a listener originally from West Africa. Ami in Fairfield, Connecticut. You're on WNYC. Thank you so much for calling in. Hi there. Good morning, Brian. Long-time listener, second-time caller. Ha. Glad you're on. Yeah. Thank you. I am originally from Gambia. I've lived here for almost 30 years. Well, getting, getting, getting about there. I went to college here. But I try to go back home at least once a year, at least prior to COVID. And I have a family here. I take my daughter to Gambia. I'm originally from Gambia, where she goes to school for during the winter so she can learn the culture. So I've, I've pretty much been connected with, the, with my roots all the, all the while. Um, I think the governments that we have in place now are ineffective, to tell you the truth, throughout Africa, including Southern Africa. Um, the issue, however, with the military taking over power against the will of the people, these are, these are democratic countries. We have to respect the votes and the, the voices of the people. We have to respect the will of the people. Now, the issue I think one of some of these countries have, including my own, is that the will of the country does not seem to reflect what most people think is best for the future. So you have, for instance, when you have people who are, who are really, really poor, they have no resources, they're extremely dependent on the government and or try to be dependent on the government. The government comes and lies to them and gives them hope that they never intend to fulfill. So you have these people, they, they, all of a sudden, eventually, it gets to a point where it becomes a patronage system. And so people keep voting for the same people that are in power. And then you have other people who are sitting outside saying, what can we do about it? The solution is not the military. The solution is not Wagner. The solution is not Russia. The solution is us Africans. The education system is extremely poor. These, even the military guys that are coming, very few of my African friends spend any time reading or listening to podcasts or things like that to develop their minds. You don't just have to learn from school. I have a graduate degree, but a lot of what I've learned, I've learned on my own. So we, we have to shift the mindset. But shifting the mindset is not a matter of blaming the West. Yes, there was colonialism. Yes, there was slavery and all of those things. And we cannot discount the impact. We cannot discount the trauma that it's caused and all of those things. However, our solution, our problem is not the West. All of the West African countries that are English speaking, that were colonized by the Brits, after the British left, the first the years that followed, were quite prosperous and stable because they left infrastructure, they left processes in place that carried the country through. I apologize to my dog. She's a chihuahua <laughs> well, and okay. very loud. <laughs> um, so, but um, but to to but then gradually, including in my own country, the the governments that came into that 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 remained. We had a president for thirty years, and it frustrates me quite a bit to hear a lot of the, the people in my country talk about the fact that he was a democratic government. He was a democratic president. He has a lot of accolades, a lot of titles, and things like that. But he wasn't. The military guy that followed wasn't. The coup of 1981 was was, was tremendous tragedy mm -hmm. for the entire country. We Africans have to... Uh, recently, I'll give you a quick example. My The parliamentarians in my country, 
purchased, the, the government purchased vehicles valued at $60,000 for 52 parliamentarians. These guys represent districts. In general, many of those districts, because I come from the upcountry part of the country, many of those districts, the net worth of the entire district is probably not $60,000. And mm-hmm. people are earning $2 a day and have no education system. The kids are not going to school. They're not being fed. And so you go from, you go from the colonial powers, the, the, the Western colonialism, to now and then the other, the other factors that we have China taking over in my country and in most of West Africa. Actually, that's right. And that's another, in addition to Russia, um, country that the U.S. sees as an enemy in terms of global influence, exerting a lot of influence in Africa at the same time. Ami, I'm going to leave it there. I thank you for all of that context and all those layers of observation and experience and meaning. I want to go on to another caller, and then, Alexis, I'll get your reaction to both of them. Here is Vincent in Essex County, originally from Ivory Coast. Hi, Vincent. You're on WNYC. Hi. Hi. Um, I just want to say that, unlike UK, it's never really left the uh, French-speaking countries. So if I take Ivory Coast, for example, all the banks are French, water distribution is French, power distribution is French, and there is a big French base by the airport in Abidjan. So um, uh, so that is one thing. And then they are, they, they are present in, in the economy. And even the currency that is being used in all these French-speaking countries are made in France. They are called the Franc CFA. And, these are, and they, they are involved in all the economic decisions. So it is more a neocolonialism than an, an, an independence. So the, the, and, and, and to maintain that kind of relationship, um, France makes sure that they are involved in selecting the next president. We cannot really talk about democracy because that is a way for them to pick who they want to put in power. And the best president is not the one who works for his, for, 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 for his people. It's the one who, who works for the, uh, the Western countries. So do so, you, and do then you feel, just, Vincent, having said that, do you feel that the democratically elected president... Bazoum, who was just overthrown in the coup, was more of a representative of French interests or the coup leaders? Uh, the, the, all, the, all the presidents that are not um, for the French interest, you have, a, a, you know, they are thrown out one way or the other. So, um, you know, it, it is a it is French interest to have someone who is pro-French, for example, let me put it that way. So, and they work hard to, to maintain that kind of relationship. Are the coup and leaders pro-France, as far as you can tell? Uh, no, they, all, all the coup leaders, and that, that's what is going on there, all the coup leaders in Burkina Faso, Mali, and Burkina, and that's why they all united, because they all are anti-French. Vincent, I'm going to leave it there for time. Thank you very much. Uh, So, Alexis, two very different and very interesting callers, Vincent putting it in post-colonial terms um, and and why there's some fervor for a coup like this, because France, unlike the UK, he said, never really decolonized after they officially pulled out decades ago. Ami is talking about more 
systemic local failures, like on the educational system and, and things like that? What were you thinking as you listened to the calls? I was thinking that both of them made valid points, and I think there was a lot of truth in what both of them said. I think with Vincent, um, I mean, really, I think Vincent hit the nail on the head in terms of why this is happening. If you look at where there have been coups, these are former French colonies, and but the French, never they never left. I mean, I made a, a similar point um, near the start. I mean, they had an entirely different uh, colonial model, which was called France Afrique, and it was an intellectual view of the world whereby they would impose just the French state of being, uh, what it, the French spirit in all their colonies. And they wanted to effectively control people and they never let go. So um, the, as a result, if you never let go and you still control big businesses um, and you control the currency and you install politicians. When things do not go well, people will hold you accountable. And that is what is happening. People looking to France and the people, um, the, the democratically elected presidents who have basically been supported by France, and they just said, this isn't working for us because we are impoverished um, and we're being killed by these Islamist insurgents. And France, you're not coming to our, our aid. You're not coming to our assistance. You're not coming to help us. Um, and there was also mention of uh, China and Russia. Crucially, the China, neither the Chinese nor the Russians are imposing an intellectual um, view of the world in the same way as the French did, this France freak thing. They're not trying to force Mandarin or Russian on people. Um, they're not trying to control how they view the world. They're just saying, well, we'll build infrastructure. That's what the Chinese are saying. We'll lend you money to do that on favorable terms. Or, as the Russians are saying, we will come and kill the insurgents on your behalf in exchange for some access to your natural resources. Now, in terms of what the previous caller said, what I agreed with in particular was the point about education and health. And I think that's something that is really lost in many of the conversations that we have around this, because we look at it from very much a Western standpoint. And understand, understandably, like how does this affect security? Will the Sahel become a hotbed for the next wave of attacks on the global north? Um, but it's also worth bearing in mind that this happens because people, as I said, um, are very poor and there are low levels of literacy and there are poor health services. And the real tragedy here is that in we're not really even going to see the effects of this unfold for another 20 years or so. Because I mean Niger has one of the fastest growing populations in the world. I mean, on UN projections, it looks like it's going to pretty much triple in population size from around 24 million now to around just under 70 million in 2050. And really there's no forward thinking because the difficulty when you have military rulers who are there to basically just try and stop the insurgencies and keep people happy is they're not thinking in terms of long-term solutions they're not thinking about infrastructure development they're not thinking about building schools training teachers and they're not thinking about building hospitals or or in terms of budgetary allowance how you know what what percentage of our budget will go towards um, maternal health care, for example, or literacy. So there's a real time bomb in that part of the world because these military rulers, I understand why they're there. And I think your two uh, listeners summed up why they're there, particularly Vincent, mm. I thought. But there, there's a real time bomb. 
So interesting. I'm going to sneak one more caller in here. We're just about out of time. Uh, but Ahmed in the Bronx is going to mention yet another dynamic. Ahmed, you're on WNYC, but we have 30 seconds for you. Hi, Ahmed. Okay. Hi, Brian. Very interesting. You remember the people of Azawad back in Mali, immediately after the overthrow of Muhammad Gaddafi. You mean when the U.S. was the involved in trying to overthrow Gaddafi? When Gaddafi was overthrown and assassinated. In Libya. Yes, right. and? You know, those people, we call them the Tuaregs, back in Mali. I think Ahmed's line is, is shaky. <clears throat> but Alexis, I think he was going to talk about, I think he told our screener about a lot of weapons being dropped in the effort to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, which was a U.S. priority for a short amount of time um, back, I guess, when Obama was president, uh, and, um, and that that gave a lot of weapons inadvertently to people we now consider bad actors, coup leaders and the like. Uh, 30 seconds for you. Do you think that happened? Yes, I do, absolutely. I think um, in terms of Islamist insurgents, those bad actors gained weapons from the fallout from Gaddafi, and equally, some of these will fall into the hands of coup leaders. Um, but yeah, the Sahel is awash with weapons, and that is partly a byproduct of what happened with the fall of Gaddafi. And that's why we're seeing these coups now um, and this level of violence. Alexis Aquadurum, managing editor at the news organization Semaphore. Africa, I think a lot of listeners in the New York area and around the country now understand these headlines from Niger a lot better than they did a little while ago. Thank you so much for explaining so much. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.